Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. I heard a story once of, you, you know, the, the famous composer Mozart? Uh, he, he was quite a, a musical prodigy. He was, he was really a, a brilliant, brilliant musician, uh, like our own Wesley van der Vestes, and he also composed, you know, all kinds of brilliant stuff. And um, his father, Leopold, he lived with his father, Leopold, in Vienna, and his father, Leopold, was also uh, quite a good musician. And it said that, that, that uh, young Wolfgang Mozart, uh, Amadeus Mozart, used to play... So sometimes, you know, when he was sort of in his teenage years, he, he went through sort of a rough patch where he would go out and party with his friends. And then he'd be out sort of late into the night and maybe turn, sort of return only late at night or early in the morning hours. And then he'd play this trick on his dad. His dad would already be asleep. And then he'd go to the piano. They had like a downstairs and an upstairs. He's, he, they all slept upstairs. Um, he'd go to the piano downstairs and he'd start, he'd start playing a scale, but nice and loud. Uh, and then he played slower and slower and slower, and then he'd leave, leave out the last note or two. And then he'd go and sleep. <laughs> and it said his, his dad would toss and turn <laughs> in his sleep, you know. He'd like toss and turn, and eventually he just couldn't, he couldn't uh, you know, handle it anymore. He'll get up, he'd go downstairs, and he'd play the last two notes <laughs> just to complete the scale. And... Um, I don't know if it's a true story, but I understand his dad's, you know, pain. <laughs> and I think to some extent we all do. We, we, how can I put it? We, 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 we crave, we have a craving for what is incomplete to be made complete. We, we, we have a craving, a longing for what is imperfect to be made perfect. Uh, I, I remember I saw you sort of along a similar line uh, um, years ago. It was one of those first movies where they combined like live action, you know, with, with animation. I think it was called something like Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Uh, and, and there's a scene where the bad guy's looking for Roger Rabbit and he's hiding in some other cupboard. And the, and, the, and, the, and the bad guy just says to him, come out, come out, you know. It's no use hiding. And uh, Roger Rabbit is just sort of terrified sitting there in the cupboard hiding. And so the, the bad guy uses this trick. He goes, da 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 and, and Roger starts sweating, you know. And he goes, da 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 And Roger, like, he starts twitching, you know. He goes like this. And he goes, da 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 And Roger shouts, da! <laughs> and the guy knows where he is, and he, he catches him. <laughs> and in a sense, you know, if, if, we, if we think about it carefully, in a sense, our lives are like that. Our lives are incomplete. Our lives are imperfect, and we're longing for completion. We're longing for perfection. And that's what um, this morning's scripture is about. Before I read it, let me just read um, two other scriptures uh, in, the same, in the same book. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or, uh, or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. And we, we see that the, it starts with the work that the Holy Spirit does in us. Now, uh, I'm, I'm sort of taking this passage from 1 Corinthians 13 from verse 8. 
Uh, and and I'm, I don't feel the need to preach the, the whole context and, and so on, because I did preach on this before, so you can just go back a year or two and just go and download the, uh, the sermons and so on. But the, the, the thing is that the Holy Spirit starts by working in us. And then he works through us. And, and verse 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then it lists some of the manifestations of the Spirit, the, the, the gifts of the Spirit. But notice it says to each, to each who has the Spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Why? For the common good, so we can minister to one another. And the Holy Spirit starts by working in us, but then he works through us. Um, but we cannot, uh, with confidence, um, have the Spirit work through us. Here's my next slide. Here we go. We can't, with confidence, have the Spirit work through us if we're not confident that he still does work through us in that way. Are there manifestations of the Spirit still for today? There are lots of people that say no. But I think this passage is probably the clearest passage in the Scripture that addresses that question and addresses it with absolute clarity. So when it says the manifestation of the Spirit, just think to yourself, who of you have the Spirit? You don't have to put up your hand. But do you have the Spirit of God? Okay? If you have the Spirit of God, then you're one of those each. To each one is given. To each one who has the Spirit is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So what is the manifestation of the Spirit in your life? Do you know? Do you know how the Holy Spirit wants to manifest through your life? Is there a certain way in which He regularly manifests through your life? Because if there is not, then other people are missing out because the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for what? The common good. If you don't know what the gifts of the Spirit are that the Holy Spirit has given you and wants you to operate in, then you are causing other people who are supposed to receive that manifestation and benefit from that manifestation to miss out. And that's why it's important that we know what the manifestation of the Spirit is that's given to each one of us. So, so in terms of, of um, how I'm going to do this, and I'm, like Rochelle said, I'll be done before 11, I'm just going to share a little bit about living between the times and, and the Jewish worldview of the two ages, because that's kind of important to understand the whole of the New Testament. And because many Christians don't understand that, they don't understand the New Testament uh, properly. We're going to look at Paul's now and Paul's then, and, and when I read through the Scriptures, see if you can notice his now and his then, and how to live in the tension. Okay, so um, let's read 1 Corinthians 13 from verse 8. It says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. <clears throat> As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, that's kind of important. The perfect. What is the perfect? When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I, have, uh, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, then now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. 
But the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So our model of discipleship, uh, and, I, and I think it's a, it's a really strong model if we, if we can you know, consistently and actively live it out, is uh, we want to learn to live the gospel, love the people, and obey the Spirit. You've, you've heard me say that before. Live the gospel, love the people, obey the Spirit. Um, and this passage in the scriptures that we read sort of talk about that. Living the gospel. The gospel is that through being baptized in His Spirit, and His Spirit being in us and us being in His Spirit, we are in Christ and therefore in His church. So God has made us one with Himself and one with one another in His Spirit. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. Okay? The second thing is, um, it says we must love people. And, and it, the passage we read starts with, love never ends. Because it ends off that section where it talks about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. And talking about, even if we do great works of service, even if we give our bodies to be burned, you know, for the faith, even if we give all that we possess to the poor, even if we, you know, have, you know, prophesy and, and, and you know, can understand profound mysteries, unless we do it in love, unless we do it out of a motive, of, and in other words, the scary thing is you can do all of those things and not do it in love, not do it out of love, and it says, then you are nothing and it profits you nothing. So we mustn't only live the gospel through the spirit that is in us and, and us being representatives of Christ, the body of Christ. That's what the body does. It, <laughs> it imitates Christ. It follows, you know, the, the, the body does what the head says, okay? That's living the gospel. Uh, we must love the people. But then it also says we must obey the spirit. And notice these last two, this last verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Two commands, okay? How to obey the Spirit. First, pursue love. That's all about the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians, uh, Galatians 5, it mentions the fruit of the Spirit, uh, and it mentions love as the first one, because in a sense, love is the one that encapsulates all the other fruit. Love, joy, peace, goodness, all that kind of stuff, those nine fruit of the Spirit. But all of them are encapsulated in love. So, so when it says pursue love, it says pursue a life of the f- that, is, that, is, um, that cultivates and grows the fruit of the Spirit. And notice, even when in Galatians, when it talks about it, it doesn't say the fruits, plural of the Spirit. It says the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? So, so the first part, the first um, way in which we obey the Spirit is to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, to pursue love. The second way is to earnestly desire spiritual gifts and to minister to one another through the manifestation of the Spirit. And, and, and by the way, I don't believe that, that 1 Corinthians 12, that list of nine, is an exhaustive list. That's just a representative list. There are many other gifts of the Spirit that are mentioned in other places in the Bible. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, you have other gifts mentioned as well. Um, so don't think that that's a, a complete list. It's just a representative list. But the point is, if we love one another, we will want to minister to one another with greater power than we ourselves have. We'll want to minister to one another in the power of the Spirit. Because our needs are just so great that only the Holy Spirit can meet those needs. Okay, so, so that's the context within which we are talking this morning, obeying the Spirit, Okay. We want to live the gospel, love the people, and obey the Spirit. But this morning, what we're focusing on um, is, is, is on obeying the Spirit. 
So, um, in recent years, sort of since the mid-1900s, they found a lot of old Jewish documents that had been lost. You've probably heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls um, and, and, and those kinds of documents. And lots of Jewish documents from Jewish communities that lived around the time of Jesus. And it, it really showed scholars things or helped scholars to clarify and see the importance of, a set, of certain things about the Jewish worldview, how people in Jesus' day saw the world that they hadn't really seen before. Um, that, 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 well, it's probably not accurate to say they hadn't seen it, but they hadn't seen it as clearly. They didn't realize how important it was. And the Jewish worldview, part, very, very prominent from these Jewish documents um, in, in the time of, that come from the time of Jesus, it, it's very prominent that they had a, a worldview that divided time into two eras, two ages. The two ages, the times, the age, this age and the age to come. Okay, and it appears all across the Jewish literature of the time. And um, they thought that the world looked like this: there's a break in time, and uh, there's this age, and then the age to come. Uh, and and here there's a there's a sort of inbreaking of the kingdom. There's an inbreaking of God Himself into history, and it's it's the whole story of how God. If you read in Ezekiel, God departs from the temple; He withdraws His presence from the temple as judgment on on Israel. Israel gets taken away into Babylonian captivity, but even when they come back, there's a sense in which they feel God is still not quite with us. We're not ruling ourselves only for short patches, like we. Saw last year, last week. Do we actually rule ourselves? But but often we are ruled by Gentiles, by the Romans or by the Greeks or or by whoever else. Um, and they thought, okay, we're still here in the age to come. We're still suffering, but there's, God's going to break in. His kingdom's going to break into history, uh, and then the ages to come is going to be uh, is going to start. And uh, not only is the son of David going to sit on the throne. And, and rule Israel, but it's going to rule from Jerusalem every nation across the earth. And everything will be put right. Perfect righteousness, perfect justice. Um, all the evildoers will be, will be judged. Um, and, and all the oppressors removed. And there will be good, just government. And we won't suffer anymore. And we see this worldview of the two ages being very prominent. But then we see Jesus and the apostles coming and presenting exactly this worldview with a very important tweak, a very important difference. They start and they say, yes, we are in this age. And yes, there is an age to come. Age to come. But it's not like the one just replaces the other. So there's a place, and the the cross and the giving of the Holy Spirit is that place where the new age starts breaking into the old age. The age to come starts breaking into this age. But then there's still a while that continues where where they go in parallel with one another. 
and there's an overlap of the ages where people are living both in this age and the age to come at the same time. They're living between the times. They're living in that tension of being still part of this age with its sin, with its suffering, with its oppression, with all the bad things and negative things that come with it. But they're already starting to experience the life of the age to come, eternal life. That's breaking in. And they call this the overlap of the ages. And, and this was the big difference, one of the big differences. There are other big differences as well. But one of the big differences between the Jewish worldview and the Christian worldview the Jews think that we are still in this age and the age to come is still completely future. But Christians understand, yes, we are still in this age, but the age to come has already started breaking in. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's the inbreaking of the age to come into this age. Uh, I heard a, um, a theologian explain it quite nicely recently, a guy called Derek Morphew. He's a, um, he's a theologian with a vineyard. And he said, if you see... The temple, if you see, say, the, the outer court where they did the sacrifices, remember they had the, the brazen altar in which they sacrificed the animals, they had the, the bronze laver in which they washed their hands, and then they had that, that little tent in the middle which had the, the holy place, and in the holy place they had the showbread, the, the menorah, the seven-parted um, uh, candlestick, and then the, what's the other one, the, 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 the table of incense, the altar of incense. Uh, and then if you went through the, the veil from there, you went into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is representing the, the presence of God. And he said, you can almost see that as the outer court is the past. It's sort of the old covenant before Jesus came where they made animal sacrifices as represented by the, 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 the brazen altar, etc. You can see the holy place <clears throat> as the present where you have the, the menorah, the, the candle stand, which represents the Holy Spirit, which is the sevenfold spirit of God. You, you, you already have true worship, you know, represented by the, the um, altar of incense. You already have the true living word of God represented by the unleavened bread um, on, on, the, on the table. And then the future is the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant representing the undiluted presence of God. But here's the thing. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened to that veil? It was torn. Not from bottom to top as though man were doing it, but from top to bottom as though God were doing it. And with that, the future has started bleeding into the presence. The age to come has started breaking into this age, and we have started experiencing it already. And that's the good news. The good news is that this age has already been invaded with the realities of the age to come. And that's what this scripture is about in 1 Corinthians um, 13 from verse 8. And that's why it mentions a now and a then. So we live between the ages, um, the time, between the times of the, uh, this age and the age to come. Uh, when Jesus tore the veil, um, the present, um, our present was invaded by our ultimate future um, so that the future is already breaking into the presence but not yet fully present see what i did there like um, another uh, sort of example of this that that i heard of was someone once told me that if you swim down the nile you'll start tasting salt 
hundreds of kilometers before it actually reaches the ocean. And, and it's, it's as though the salt water of the age to come has already started flowing backwards, upstream. It started flowing upstream, time-wise, into this age. And you can already say that, taste the salt of eternity, if I can put it that way. Um, and um, that's, that's the time in which we, we live. Uh, we live between the times. So let's look at Paul's now and Paul's then. Note if you, if you go to the scripture again. Uh, like I said, there's, there's a now and a then. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, then, then, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And that now and then is only mentioned there in that verse, in verse uh, 12, but it's actually implied in the other verses as well. Now there is prophecy. Now we prophesy in part, then prophecy will cease. Okay? So will the gifts of the Holy Spirit cease? Absolutely, yes. It says so. It says prophecy will cease. Okay? The question is when. So, so here's the question. Are we in Paul's now or are we in Paul's then? Because remember, Paul lived 2,000 years ago. Are we in Paul's then? Because if we're in Paul's then, then the gifts of the Spirit, prophecy, tongues knowledge, all of this stuff, have ceased. But if we're still in Paul's now, then the gifts have not ceased, and we still prophesy. Even though we prophesy in part, we do prophesy. Right? So are we in Paul's now or are we in Paul's then? Let's look, have a look at that. Okay? So what I'm going to do, and, and here's a, um, just a sort of a useful Bible study trick for, you know, studying certain passages. Jewish rabbis like using a a thing what they call, that they call parallelism, okay? Where they say the same thing just in different ways. So that, and, and then the different ways in which they say the same thing mutually interpret one another, okay? So we actually see Paul doing that. He talks about the, the now and he talks about the then. So, so we're going to go through these verses and we're going to see which part addresses the now, describes the now, and which part describes the then, okay? So in, in 13 verse... Verse 8, um, the, the second part, let me just read that. It says, um, for, as for prophecies, they will pass away. Okay? And in, in verse 9, um, the second part, it says, we prophesy in part. Okay, so, so which part of that is the now? The, the now is the, the fact that we prophesy in part. Now we prophesy in part. Then prophecy will pass away. Okay? Same thing with knowledge. Now we know in part, then knowledge will pass away. Now it's not all knowledge that will pass away. It's talking specifically in the context of the gifts here, uh, remember. Um, in verse 10 it says, um, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Okay? So now we experience the partial. Now we're talking about, remember we're talking about Paul's now and Paul's then. We'll see just now whether we're still in the now or in the then. So it says in, the, in Paul's now, the partial remains. In Paul's then, the perfect will come and the partial will pass away. In verse 13, he uses a metaphor. He says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, etc. And when I became a man, I put away childish ways or childish things. In other words, he says, this change from the now to, to the then is like the change from childhood to adulthood. It's a big change. It's a fundamental change. It's an it's a important change. 
Um, then in, uh, in the beginning of, of uh, verse 12, it says, We see in a mirror dimly. Now we see in a mirror dimly. Then we will see face to face. And then in, in the end of, of verse 12, it says, Now we know in part, then we will know fully, even as we are fully known. Okay, so can you see that, that there's, a, there's a now, there's Paul's now, there's Paul's, Paul's then. And all the scriptures say that the same or, or sort of divide prophecy, tongues, um, you know, our experience, our knowledge of God, our, our, our relationship with God, all of those things into a now and a then. So the question is, are we still in Paul's now or are we already in Paul's then? There are people who say the gifts have ceased. They're called cessationists from the word cease. Okay? And they say, no, we, we're in Paul's then. It says, when perfection or when the perfect comes, what is partial will pass away. And they say, okay, well, the gifts are partial. But they say, but the New Testament is perfect. And when the New Testament came, when the New Testament was complete, the gifts, which are partial, passed away. What do you think of that interpretation? <laughs> you sort of look uncertain, some of you, like, oh, I never heard that before. <laughs> is, is that interpretation possible? No, you, you need to apply pretty bad hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the laws for interpreting Scripture. You have to apply pretty bad hermeneutics to get to that. First, one, one of the rules of, of interpreting Scripture is that the Scriptures cannot mean, a Scripture cannot mean what it never could have meant to the author and original audience. Now, for those of you who don't know, Paul wrote about 13 letters, right, in the New Testament, quite a few letters. Galatians, uh, 1 Corinthians was about one of the middle letters. He wrote it sort of... He wrote all of his letters between about 50 after Christ and about 60, 60 something, early 60s after Christ. And 1 Corinthians was probably written in the middle, in the mid 50s, somewhere in the mid 50s. Okay. Now, when Paul had written all the letters from 1 Thessalonians and Galatians through to 1 Corinthians, I haven't counted how many it is, but let's say it's eight letters. Did he know at that stage he was going to write seven more letters? Did he know Peter was going to write other letters? Did he know Luke was going to write the gospel and Acts? Did he know all of that was going to be put together into the New Testament? Did his audience know it at that stage? So then it cannot possibly mean that. Because scripture cannot mean what it never could have meant to the author and the original audience. Right? Okay? That's the first problem. Now the second problem is, is, is more obvious even. <clears throat> if you want to say... Well, there's a third, I'll go, use that one as the third one. The second problem is this. That idea, that teaching, that when the New Testament, that the New Testament is that which is perfect, which causes that which is partial, the gifts to pass away, is actually heresy. It is. I'll tell you why. Okay? They write to say the New Testament is perfect. It's inspired of God. It's infallible. It's perfect. But hang on, isn't Jesus also perfect? Wasn't Jesus perfect? And didn't he come before the New Testament was completed? So why doesn't that perfect, that which is perfect, refer to Jesus then? Implicitly, that interpretation is actually saying the New Testament is perfect, but Jesus was imperfect, which is heresy. 
Thirdly, third problem, and that's probably the most obvious problem. <clears throat> if we are in Paul's den, where the perfect has come and the partial has passed away, then we will know fully as we are known. We will see face to face. Do you see God face to face? Do you know God fully as he knows you? Obviously, no. I mean, no one in their right mind will, will say yes to the answer. Then it means that we are not in Paul's den yet. We are not here yet. We are not here yet. We must still be in Paul's now. Oh, my pen doesn't want to work. We must still be in Paul's now. So, now we prophesy in part. We still prophesy. It is in part, yes, but we still prophesy. We know in part. We're still in, in sort of the partial time. Uh, we are still, in a spiritual sense, in childhood. Uh, we still see in a mirror dimly. We see God already, but not face to face yet. Uh, we know God, but we know Him in part. That, that doesn't mean that what we know about God is inaccurate. It just means, means it's incomplete. We don't know everything there is to know about God yet. <clears throat> so, why I'm sharing that with you is when it says, pursue love and, <clears throat> and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, you can have absolute confidence that we are still in Paul's now where the spiritual gifts are available. And when he says earnestly desire spiritual gifts, he's saying it to us at a time when it is still available. So we can with absolute confidence earnestly desire spiritual gifts so that we may minister to one another in the power of the Holy Spirit, so that the church may experience the common good. Okay. Now, finally... <clears throat> Um, so, so basically what we're saying is that, remember, the veil has been torn. Through Jesus' death, the veil has been torn, and the future has started breaking into the present. The, our ultimate future has started to invade our present reality. Um, and the Holy Spirit is the presence of the future. Okay? He's the presence of the future. Is the future in the present, living inside of us as the presence of God. Um, and everything the gifts allow us to experience now is just a partial foretaste of what we will experience fully then. Everything that the gifts allow us to experience now is a partial foretaste of what we will experience fully then. So prophecy is God speaking to us, but it's in part. So we're partially experiencing God speaking to us through someone else. But then we will experience God speaking to us fully and directly face to face. Now healing is available, but it's in part. Just like prophecy is in part, so healing is in part. It's already there, but it's not yet fully there. So we experience healing sometimes, but eventually we still die. And that's that's a problem with misunderstanding this and, and why it's so important to understand this, this passage. Because this passage corrects two very common problems in Christianity. Um, excuse me, I'm going to use a big word, theological word now. It's, it's, it's called eschatology. Now, you know, any ology word is a word that says the study of. So biology is the study of bios, which is biological life. Eschatology is the study of the eschaton. Eschatos is the Greek word for end. So eschatology is the study of the end times. Now, if the future 
the end, has already started breaking into the present, the now, then we're already in the end times. Okay? So, there are two mistakes that people make when it comes to eschatology. One is called an under-realized eschatology, where they say everything is not yet. Everything is still future. Everything is not yet available. Okay? That's an under-realized eschatology. An under-realized eschatology under-promises and under-delivers. <laughs> okay? Then the opposite of that is an over-realized eschatology, where it says nothing is not yet. Everything is already. Okay? Overrealized eschatology overpromises and underdelivers. Both those cases you're going to sit with disappointment and deception and misunderstanding. You're going to have the wrong expectation. In the one you're going to trust God for too little, and the other one you're going to trust God for too much. And you know when you trust God for too much, if you trust Him for things that He has not promised, that's not faith, that's presumption. Okay? And, and, and you see, I mean, we've all seen both people, people on both sides. We've seen people sitting in traditional churches who say, no, we don't believe in healing. No, we don't believe in prophecy. No, we don't believe in the manifestation of the Spirit. No, we don't believe in those promises are available now. In fact, sometimes you get the feeling some of them think that none of the promises are available. They're just part of the white-knuckle society hanging on until Jesus comes. And that's, that's a sad way to live Christianity because it means that there are so many blessed gifts that God has given to us that remain unclaimed and unreceived. It's sad. It doesn't bring glory to God. And it doesn't promote the common good because there's so much. God gives us gifts not for us, but for the people around us. So the most unselfish thing that we can do is earnestly desire spiritual gifts so that we can bless the people around us. Okay? And that's why underrealized eschatology is so dangerous and so sad. Okay? But the opposite problem is overrealized eschatology. And you know, that's, that's one of the slightly unfortunate things for me about um, Bill Johnson's teaching about heaven invading earth. It un- unfortunately inevitably leads to a bit of an overrealized eschatology. Because here's his reasoning he says the kingdom is not the future breaking into the present, it's heaven breaking into earth. Now, what's the problem with that? His reasoning goes like this. Is there any sickness in heaven? No. And he's right about that. Therefore, there should, if we have faith and obedience, there should be no sickness on earth. But then you have to carry that reasoning through, that theology through to its, um, its inevitable conclusion. Is there any death in heaven? Then, by the same argument, if we truly believe and obey, there should be no death on earth. In other words, Christians will only get sick Um, and die if they're disobedient or unbelieving. That's the inevitable consequence of that teaching. Um, And that's why I I prefer, even though there's a lot that I I do agree with Bill Johnson on, and as you can see, it's very clear that the gifts continue. There's no doubt about that. We are in Paul's now, not in Paul's then. We're in Paul's now where prophecy and tongues and all that kind of stuff still continue. Um, I prefer using the language not of heaven invading earth, because the, the scripture doesn't actually use that language. Uh, when, it says your, when it says your kingdom come, the, on earth as it in heaven modifies your will be done, not your kingdom come. But I, I prefer in any case talking about God's kingdom coming, not heaven coming, but the kingdom coming, because it, it's slightly different. The one is an overrealized eschatology. The other one is what's called an inaugurated eschatology. So if an underrealized and an overrealized eschatology are both wrong, what's the right one? It's an inaugurated eschatology. Not 
everything is not yet, and not everything is already, but it's already and not yet at the same time. Okay? The kingdom has been inaugurated, but not yet consummated. Yes, we can know, truly know, but we cannot yet fully know. Yes, we can experience healing, but we will also still die. But even when we die, we will live for eternity. Can you, can you, see, can you see the difference here? So, uh, the word, it's interesting. Um, you'll, you'll see different translations um, translate the word differently. When it says in, in, in verse 10, when the perfect has come, the partial will pass away. Other translation says, when the complete has come, the incomplete or the partial will pass away. And um, the word, the, the Greek word is, uh, or the phrase there is totelios. Telios is, means like a telescope sees to the end. Okay? So telios means, um, I actually wrote it down here. Let me just read it to you, otherwise I might um, get it wrong. It means perfect, complete, fully developed, mature, that which is fully accomplished or finished, um, attaining an end or purpose. So, so telios, in a sense, is not only our final condition, but our ideal condition our ideal environment in which we live. In other words, when perfection, when teleos has come, we will be in our ideal environment, our optimal environment. It's, it's a bit like, and I put up a, a picture here, see if I can find it, of a whale. Now that whale, unfortunately, is stuck in shallow water. Okay? Sort of flopping around there in the shallow waters. Now that whale... It can sort of probably survive for a while like that, but eventually it'll die. Because it can't really catch fish, it can't really feed itself, it can't really take care of itself. It, um, it's going to probably eventually die there, like a beach whale as well. You know, it'll just, beach whale will just die like faster. We like that whale in a sense. We're, all, we're, we're still stuck in this age, but the water that we need to swim in, the water of the age to come has started trickling in, but we, it's still shallow water. So eventually, you know, it'll, it'll die. But, but when that, that, that age, the age to come, has fully come, we'll be swimming like, a, you know, in deep waters. And then that whale can sort of just enjoy itself. It can dive. It can swim around and so on. Here it looks clumsy and stuck and helpless, just like we often do. But in the full deep waters, it looks graceful and powerful. And it could swim fast. And, and, and we're going to be like that uh, as well. So, teleos is, is basically our ideal condition. Uh, it, it refers to the condition in which we fully flourish, uh, what we were made for and long for. And, and, and how is that described in this text? How is what we were made for and what we long for described? Now, we see in part, then we see face to face. Now we know in part, then we will Fully known, no, fully known as we have been fully known. In other words, our teleos, our teleos, our ideal condition for flourishing is being face to face with God, knowing God as He knows us, being in perfect, intimate relationship with Him. That is our teleos. Anything other than that, we're like fish out of water, or at the very best, fish in shallow water, struggling. 
That's what you were made for. You were made to have a face-to-face relationship with God. You were made to know God fully as he knows you. And the word know there is, is kind of important. It's, 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 it's more significant than just having knowledge of. I mean, if, if you think about it, another passage in, in, in Matthew chapter 5 that talks about the gifts, it says, in the last days, and it was the age to come, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do merry miracles in your name? And it says, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Now, does it mean that Jesus was unaware of them? Like, who are you? You know, where did you come from? I don't know your name. I don't know your number. Is that what he's saying? I mean, he's God after all. He's, he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Obviously, he knows about them. So when it says, I never knew you, he's talking about relationship. He says, I never had relationship with you. You might think back to the beginning of the Bible where it says, and Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived the son. Okay, so, so then, then you can start seeing what the word know and knew in Scripture actually means. In other words, when it says, we will know fully as we have been fully known, it, will mean, it means we'll have that intimate relationship with God that we long for and so desperately need. And the reason we can have it, it says, love never fails. And that word for love there is agape. How can Paul be so sure that he says that I shall fully know? I mean, wasn't Paul a murderer after all? Didn't he murder people in the church? Yes, he did. How can a murderer say, now I know in part, but then I shall? Can you hear the certainty in his voice? Then I shall know fully as I am fully known. How can a murderer be so certain of that? Because he understands that love never fails. The love, the agape love of God that never fails is his unconditional love. And that's the love by which he, Jesus, came to earth and was robbed of the face of the Father and had to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we will never have to be robbed from the face of the Father so that we can know the Father face to face. And notice it says, I know in part, but then I shall fully know even as I have. It doesn't say, I know in part, but then I shall fully know as I will be fully known. It says, I know in part, but then I shall fully know as I have already been fully known. God already fully knows us. In other words, where we are incapable of fully knowing God and fully giving ourselves to God, just because of our human sinfulness and fallenness and brokenness, God has no such limitation. And God has already given himself fully to us and he already fully knows us in a way that we will only one day in the future when our salvation is completed, know him. So I just, I just want you to close your eyes and I want you to just thank God for your future, your ultimate future, when you will see him face to face, when you will know him fully as he has already fully known you. Just thank him for that future. And then when you thank him for that future, I want you to thank him that that future is already, is already breaking into your present right now. It's already broken in. It's not yet fully broken in, but it's already broken in. And part of that breaking in is the manifestation of the Spirit. So I want you to ask now, finally, God, you say to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What is, Holy Spirit, what is the, mani- the manifestation that you want to give to me? How do you want to manifest yourself in me and through me? Ask Him right now. 
In fact, ask him to manifest himself in you and through you this week. Say, God, please, Holy Spirit, I make myself available. Please manifest yourself through me in whatever way you want to. Yes, Lord God, we thank you, Lord God, that we can know you, even though we don't know you fully yet. But thank you that we can look forward to knowing you so much more intimately, so much more face-to-face than we do now. Lord, I just pray your blessing over your people in Jesus' name. And I pray that we will receive everything that you have made available to us, that we will leave no promise unclaimed uh, and gift unreceived in Jesus' name. And we pray, Lord God, that you will glorify your name through us as you show the future in our present through us and in us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.